0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Roy Keyes. Based in Houston, Roy is a data scientist and consultant who has built and led teams at multiple tech startups in a variety of industries. You can follow him on Twitter at Roy Coding, and check out his website at RoyCoding.com. Roy is the author of the Lean Pub book, Hiring Data Scientists and Machine Learning Engineers, A Practical Guide. In the book, Roy provides a detailed guide for people hiring data scientists into their organizations, helping you understand the various roles you'll be hiring for and how to pick the right candidates for each position. In this interview, we're going to talk about Roy's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and self-publishing a book. So thank you very much, Roy, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I always like to start these stories, or these interviews, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and your path to a career in data science.
1: Sure. Well, I I guess the origin story, I I didn't come out of a data science egg or anything exciting like that but uh i uh, well i'll go back to where i grew up so I, I grew up in kansas which is right in the middle of the u.s um and uh i always wanted to be a marine biologist which makes sense when you're you know hundreds or thousands of miles away from the nearest uh, shoreline but uh, when i went off to uh college i, I ended up studying physics and uh, eventually, I ended up doing a PhD in physics. Uh, that that whole time, I, I think, you know, I, I was uh, when I was in high school it was kind of the early web days, and so I started getting into um, just basic web stuff and programming. And eventually, uh, in in college, and then later in grad school, really drifted towards computational uh, physics stuff. So I was always kind of doing some programming things. Um, Always big on open source and Python, and uh, right right around the time when I was finishing grad school, uh, data science started to become a thing uh, something that i had started seeing I, I I also was always kind of peripherally into startups and and stuff like that and and just kind of paying attention, had a few friends that were involved in the startup world and So after graduate school, I worked briefly in a uh, cancer clinic doing radiation physics, uh, what's called medical physics. And uh, after doing that for a couple of years, I kind of was at a point where I needed to decide what I wanted to do going forward and decided that maybe data science would be uh, a good choice because I thought it was really interesting. I had been learning some of these methods to try to incorporate into some of the research I had been doing. And so, kind of dove head in there were all these new at the time learning resources online open free classes you know people were uh, had the desire at that point about 10 years ago to educate the whole world for free with a uh, quote Ivy League education and uh, some of the early classes that came out were uh, you know related to data science and machine learning and stuff so I did that I started doing some consulting mostly with tech startups, uh, eventually moved out to San Francisco and started working directly for some companies. And uh, then also you know, at some point moved back to Houston, which is where I went to college and uh, have been here for the last five years or so. And in, in the course of that time, I have uh, you know started out as a individual contributor doing a lot of the hands-on stuff. And then eventually, um, Making the sort of blind jump into management, and actually uh, enjoying it a lot. I mean, I like uh, working with um, all the people on my team. You know, I, I feel kind of as a manager that uh, if you can get high quality people on your team, which I think I've been incredibly lucky in that regard, then then they uh, they can serve as a you, you know they they can certainly amplify or multiply whatever you could have done yourself. So sometimes that's a, that's a great feeling. I mean, um, you're, still, you're still somebody's boss, which uh, doesn't always go as smoothly as you might like or something, but uh, I, I actually enjoy that. And, and one of the areas that I just spent a ton of time on and also I think enjoyed was, was related to hiring.
0: Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that story. on that's really interesting though, the, the path that you went down, um, you, it was funny, you reminded me of an old memory at the beginning. I grew up in Saskatchewan in the middle of Canada Which, like Kansas, I imagine, is very flat. Yes. Um, And there actually is, at least where I grew up, there is a connection between the prairies and the sea, which is that in the pre-kind of radar days, prairie kids were um, good candidates for the Navy because they could judge distances so well.
1: Interesting. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) If you don't, I mean, if you if you've never grown up in a very flat place, it might be hard to imagine like being able to see the horizon. Right, and when you spin around in every direction, yes. and no trees, uh, and no trees, exactly, exactly.
1: I suppose uh, as long as you don't uh, get immediately seasick.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I imagine that'd be a big problem. <laughs> um, uh, and so, yeah. So you, you you mentioned you did a PhD. It was in physics, I believe, uh, and you did that in in Houston.
1: Uh, the PhD I did in in New Mexico at the University of New Mexico. Oh, in New Mexico.
0: Okay, okay. Yes. And what was the subject of the of your dissertation?
1: So. Uh, I initially went out there actually to do stuff related to quantum computing. I was probably about 10 years too early for that uh, to really uh, be a, a viable path, maybe maybe 20 years too early, actually. Uh, but then I, I, at some point, I ended up switching over to what's called medical physics, which is sort of an, a field of applied physics that is, uh, mostly mostly deals with radiation therapy for cancer treatment. And for diagnostic imaging, like x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, ultrasound, that kind of stuff. So I I actually did a clinical master's degree in there while I was in grad school, which is aimed at training people to be able to work in a hospital setting. And then my research itself was uh, focused on what's called particle therapy. That's using big accelerators to shoot beams of charged particles uh, into people and try to uh, kill off tumor cells. And my specific research was uh, all, almost all computational focused, uh, but it was, it was basically around trying to figure out how you could do these calculations more quickly. Because when you, when you treat a cancer patient with radiation therapy, the uh, radiation doctor, the radiation oncologist, they basically say, okay, here's, here's your tumor, and we want to deliver this dose to those tumor cells. But at the same time, we want to... Uh, make sure that the dose to some of these other healthy tissues is below certain thresholds, especially it depends on the organ, because different organs have different sensitivities to radiation. So uh, there's a a computational problem in there about how you set up the geometry of the of the radiation delivery and everything to try to achieve those targets. And while I wasn't working on the geometric problem, um, I, I did my my grad school was uh, my, my. I had two advisors. One was in the physics department. One was in the co- the computer science department. My advisor that was in the computer science department he focused on this computational geometry, which was optimizing these problems. And then uh, on the on the physics side, which is what more I was working on was was trying to get as accurate possible as possible calculations of what the radiation dose would be. So a, a lot of times as a physicist, you're working on uh, very, very simplified problems like, you know, imagine an electron floating along and then it encounters a proton. What's going to happen? Uh, but with these applied problems, it is, you know, you've, you've got, as we call it, a medium, but that medium is a human. So it's, it's a lot more complicated than, say, you know, the vacuum of space with one electron and one proton or something. And so there, the, the only real way to solve these problems is to do calculations. And, The gold standard uh, way to calculate this stuff is called Monte Carlo, which is basically you're doing uh, thousands or millions of simulations over and over and and kind of taking the statistical result at the end. But the big problem with that type of calculation is that uh, on the one hand, it's it's the most accurate method, but on the other hand, it's very slow. So I was, my dissertation was uh, around trying to figure out ways to speed up those types of calculations so that they could actually be used in a clinical setting.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'm familiar with Monte Carlo from, uh, you know, the kind of finance side of things. Um, yes. But it's, it's, so, it's so interesting because, um, you know, from the kind of layperson's perspective of which I would, I would certainly qualify, um, you know, we would think, you know, someone doing medical physics would, you know, we, when we, see, we sort of see on TV, we see somebody goes into the tube and then like an image of their brain comes out. And um, it's not the machinery behind that isn't taking a picture of the brain. The picture is being reconstructed, pre- reconstructed to you from a bunch of data. Um, yes. And there's calculations that are going on. It's not. It's not a kind of straightforward one-to-one correspondence between what's being fed into the machine and what's being presented to you. Um, and also, the I think a lot of people would think, oh, if a physics a physicist is basically shooting lasers at something, um, uh, you know, what do you need? What do you need computation for, right? You know, you point it and you shoot. Uh, but of course, you know, there's so much variability in, in the human body. And in, I mean, when you get down to microstructures and things, like, I just made up that word, but you know, you get down to some very small things. There's a lot of variability and the idea that what you have to do in the end is a lot of really sophisticated guessing, which is what it yes. sounds, sounds like, you know. Right.
1: Is and w- w- one of the main reasons for the radiation therapy that you have physicists who work in these clinics is because, uh, you know, you, you are using some big machine that spits out radiation but the problem is that you, know, you can't see the radiation, you can't feel the radiation, you can't hear it, you can't smell it. And you, know, you, you are, on the one hand, doing these very sophisticated calculations about here is the shape of the beam we should use, and here is the angle and everything, and this is how long the beam should be on, and all that stuff to uh, achieve the desired doses. Uh, b- but if the machine is not giving you the beam you think you have, then that's not going to work. So a lot of what the the physicists do in these radiation clinics is they go in and they make these very precise measurements of the radiation, and then uh, you know they they have to be experts to sort of interpret those measurements and and deal with uncertainty and all those kind of things. And so it's a very uh, central role there, and it's it's one of those things that may be unusual in the medical setting. Uh, and I'm sure someone, I'm sure a lot of people give me flack for this, but it's that it's, it's a role that cannot be fulfilled, for example, by the physician, the doctor, you know, they're the ones on the medical side that, that are the top sort of level person in the clinic and the hospital. They have the the most qualifications, but at the same time, uh, you know, they don't, they're not experts in like the physics side. I'm sure that maybe, maybe people like pharmacists would say something similar that, you know, they're doing some chemistry and pharma, uh, uh, I, I don't remember all the terms at the top of my head, it's been long enough, but, uh, you know, kind of things where there's like this level of expertise that's needed, uh, that just doesn't exist with anyone else.
0: Yeah, I, I'm a doctor, not a physicist, Jim. Um, right. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that, that that sounds just like really fascinating work to have done. Um, and it, it's really interesting, I was uh, just thinking about it, you know, going over your bio on LinkedIn and stuff like that, what it must have been like to go from a kind of structured world, an academic Kind of degree like a PhD and I didn't know about the the clinical work that training that you did as well and to go from that into the just fray of the startup world what was that yeah, experience like?
1: Well I, I had a little bit of a taste of it before but uh, certainly there will be people that I've worked with in the last 10 years would be very surprised to know that I used to wear a tie to work uh, but while I was doing my master's degree I actually worked at a startup and that was a startup that was building particle accelerators so, a hardware startup, except that the hardware itself was all you know million dollar plus hardware, and it, it was a bunch of physicists from Los Alamos uh, using you know technology that they had developed for physics experiments and then they were we were we were trying to build these relatively small particle accelerators that that accelerated protons to use in a lot of different medical and industrial applications and uh, you know that that was certainly uh, for the people in Kind of the startup world you know the problems there were around product market fit funding uh you know and the, the iteration cycles on these products were uh would would make many startup people just uh give up probably because we're talking you know years of, of iteration cycles and using uh physical technology that you would send off to someone to do uh super precision machining and manufacturing, and then you get it back. And, and Oh, by the way, it doesn't do what you expect to do. So very different than, you know, the software that most startups are working on. Um, so I, I had some sense of that and and that was a, you know, a, a company, I guess the most, uh, classical startup aspect to, to it was that it didn't work out in the end, which is uh, that's the story of, you know, most startups, but it was, it was good experience. It, it was kind of interesting. Um, and I'm sad that it didn't work because they were trying to do some cool stuff related to uh, some photovoltaic processing with these particle accelerators. That was the customers wanted to do that, uh, and then se- several medical applications. Uh, but you know then later, when I decided to go into the startup world, and, and as I mentioned before, I, you know I'd always been kind of paying attention, reading you know the news sites and stuff, probably since the early 2000s related to startups and what was going on. And uh, so when I decided to go that route, you know, I contacted my friends that were kind of in this world and started asking them for advice uh, and then kind of jumping in. It, it is a big transition, I think, from sort of the academic world or also when I were in a hospital, you know, very bureaucratic, very in a different, very different setting. Um, once, once actually when I was working in a clinic and uh, I proposed to my boss that we get access to the database that recorded all of the uh, kind of treatments, how the treatment worked and the equipment. And that way we could monitor some of the stuff that was going on and also investigate something that had happened. And, you know, I went to the IT department. My boss said, great, you know, go talk to IT. I went to the IT department and they basically looked at me like I was some sort of hacker trying to break in. You know, why could you possibly want access to the database? And, uh, eventually, uh, the CEO of that, of that, uh, cancer center had to tell the head of it, like, you need to give Roy access to the database <laughs> because it, you know, it was just, it was just very far removed from the way that they did things, uh, at least at that time. And, uh, you know, so going over to the startup world where, you know, they would, especially they'd say, Oh, here, here are the keys to the database, you know, do whatever you need to do. Try not to crash it, you know, very different. And, uh. And then just, you know, iterating at, at all times. I, my two main startup experiences—the the startups I spent the most time in—one was around sort of frantically trying to find product market fit, and the other one was about frantically trying to get margins to the point where, you know, profitability would be possible, and also, and more immediately, that people would want to invest more money in the company. And so th- those are things certainly that in in an academic setting or something, it's just very, very different. Academia is more like try to get your grant accepted and then try to shoehorn the things that you're doing that don't quite fit under that grant into the grant so that you can pay for them.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you. That gives me a great opportunity to ask you a specific for a specific example. Um, I mean, for example, when you talk about product market fit, for those familiar familiar with the lingo in in the startup world. Um, what it does is you, th- what that usually means in people's sort of imagination is that you've got an idea for a product, you you put it out there, and you try and find a market for it. But what happens, with, you said iterating a couple times, is that like you don't try, you can't really iterate the market, but you can iterate your product. Yes. Um, and so what you do is you try to find what's called product market fit, where you've got a product that has a market out there that wants it, and then you can try to achieve profitability. And I think, I mean, for someone like me, for example, when I think about product market fit, I think about like UI. For example, right? What, you know what? How does the UI work? How do I make sure people know what this product actually does and that they can actually do it? But from a data science perspective, how can data science be used to help a startup find product right. market fit?
1: And well, I, I think there's two sides of it. You know, one is um, the analytics side of things, and, and you know, so you come back to the the UI stuff. You know, it's like you're doing A/B testing and these kind of things. How how is this? How is the market, if you will, responding? To uh, this version of the feature versus this version of the feature, uh, you know, and then on, on the other side of it is sort of like the if you're if you are building a product that is powered by data, so data driven somehow, and then th- there's often a question, you know, people people love data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence, you know, r- right now it's very uh, very popular, we'll say. And, but there's, there's often a question of, of whether the thing that you could build using those techniques is actually solving a problem that people have. So a lot of it is, you know, I, I mean, uh, the founder of a company, you know, they might come into something and say, oh, we're going to, we'll use a lot of lingo here. We're going to disrupt this market using AI, something like that. And, you know, it may be, uh, if they're not, On the technical side of this you know it may be that they've seen a demo of some sort of technique and they're like oh you know if we just apply it to this domain then that'll make all the difference and we can build a product that's better than these other ones but uh you know often it's it's hard to know if if the these techniques that you're using are actually going to perform well enough or if the data is actually going to be available or you know if you're gonna to have to spy on people or do something that people don't like but but also ultimately, are you going to actually be able to build something that is better enough than the other solutions that exist uh, that that people will want it? And there's just such a sort of a allure to the the buzzwords of things like AI that 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 kind of uh, you know it it pulls people in and they want to do that, but it's it's often. You know, you often just, you have no idea at the outset if you could build something that will actually give you, give value to the customers, give you that product market fit you need. And, you know, that it, it could be that really what you need is just a uh, reasonable system and a reasonable UI and UX kind of experience that that people want and that the AI component is is small to none in there.
0: Yeah, I've got a lot of questions to ask you, I think, about, um, about about this kind of thing. I mean, for example, we're going to have to go into, and you do this at the beginning of your book, go a little bit into terminology, what's data science, what's machine learning, engineering, what's artificial intelligence. But it's really fascinating to me. One of the themes, maybe just partly because of my personal proclivities behind this podcast, but also because so many of our guests are technical people, is that when you've been on the other side of the production of things, right. Um uh, you know, in my experience in a former life as an investment banker, it would have been, you know, charts and forecasts and things like that, right? Business plans. When you've been on the other side, it's much more sophisticated things like machine learning and AI and data science and stuff like that in the, the um, charts or the dashboards or whatever the reports that you produce. Um, you know that behind the curtain, there's some guy, you know, with crumbs on his keyboard making a bunch of decisions Right. Uh, but if you've only ever been on the receiving end, you just see the great and powerful laws hovering over the right. curtain.
1: Or, or I think from the data science side, we'd say that there was a, a, a data person who presented some analysis with a whole bunch of caveats, and then the business person took it and threw out all the caveats and said, look at this magic that we've got.
0: Exactly. And this is actually, so this leads me to, I'm going to ask you a version of a question that I've asked many times in this pod- podcast before, which is, "What what do you do when you're trying to overcome the throw out the caveats hurdle right because and it often it's not even conscious right like people just don't they basically don't process the caveats when you present the results of an it's basically the results of an investigation basically or an or an analysis to somebody again with a bunch of decisions behind it and i've found that i mean you know in my experience people just often you you it's really hard to get through to them and then and then you run into the the kind of next level problem which is well, then what good are you, right? If you can't give me the definite results that I imagine right. a, a good data scientist would be able to provide yes. me with, you know, what, so how do you navigate it, those waters?
1: You know, I, I think it's, it's very difficult. Uh, I, I have definitely seen that firsthand. Um, you know, I, I just, one anecdote, I, when, when I was charged, my team was charged with forecasting demand uh, once, and then the, uh, the sort of executive that was in charge of, of our group, whatever, was dissatisfied with our forecasting and said, look, I'm going to pick these couple other people, not on your team, and we're going to do this by hand because we, we don't think that what you're doing is, is any good. And you know, my initial internal reaction was just kind of rage because we had spent so much effort on this. And, you know, we knew the problem inside and out, but, it, but, we, but we also knew it was an incredibly hard problem. And, you know, basically at this point we had, or we, we had recently, before that's been about six months, just tooling everything up so that we could get the data flowing and everything going. And, uh, but, you know, I didn't say that. I, I basically said, you know, okay, go for it. And, but kind of because I knew that they were destined to failure. Because it was a matter it was really a, the point of them completely underestimating the difficulty of the problem, and uh, you know the 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 outcome was that within less than a week they gave up and they never said anything about it again so I mean th- that's a uh, sort of bad bad kind of version of it where you know they we we failed at really trying to convey the the situation as it was and the difficulty of the situation uh, and and then at the same time you know they had misaligned expectations so so there is this sort of uh, misalignment between between the, the the groups of people so I, I think that you know a lot of it especially for a senior level person manager whatever is that they need to spend a lot of time trying to Uh, Educate and manage expectations around things for when you're working with, uh, you know, internally or with a customer. Like if if you're in some sort of consulting situation, you know, you need to uh, really try to lay things out as they are and and as gently, or the way I the way I put it in the consulting situation is sort of as gently as possible, bring people back down to earth, so that they can kind of understand things Uh, more, maybe concrete. Uh, anecdote that i just just recently heard from someone i know told me that when they had worked at a big media company and they would always put screenshots of plots they would make to put them in slide decks and uh, their their boss or or someone maybe it was their boss's boss or something pulled them aside one day and said look i'm going to show you how to embed charts in the slides so you're not doing screenshots and then you know his his response was well, the reason I take screenshots is so you can't mess with the chart. And, you know, that's the kind of thing as the analysts that, you know, they fear whatever is the the data person, but it, it's uh, you know, and, and that's, that's when there's in this instance, a big power imbalance. So that data person is just doing whatever they can, but it, it is, I think a lot about doing your absolute best to like set expectations and kind of cut away a lot of the fluff and the hype and uh, you know, Trying to sit people down and say there is real value here, probably, but there's also a lot of stuff around it that feels very attractive. But you've got to understand that that may not be real.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating they, when the world of messy data meets the world of messy personalities. You know, and sort of <laughs> that, you know, you know, your your boss's boss, and it's kind of two removes. You reminded me of a, something I hadn't thought about for a long time. But one time when I was you know a young investment banking analyst, I produced a, a, an embedded chart. Um, uh, and one of my colleagues said, you can't show a toothy graph like that to Martin. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, he doesn't like toothy graphs or he doesn't like toothy charts. And what this means is basically for anyone listening, it means like really big spikes in the line, in the line and the chart, right? You
1: want something nice and smooth.
0: So, so what do you do? You change the scale of the y-axis so that it's not toothy anymore. Um <laughs> And I, I think if I recall correctly, I objected and said, no, like, this is the scale that's appropriate. And I remember being in the meeting room, putting, the, putting up the, the sort of like, you know, the slide on the wall. And uh, the guy goes, why is there so much variability in the line, you know, and <laughs> he didn't care about the scale. It was just the feature of the the line being toothy that, that grabbed Man. him. Um, and uh, that's not to knock him or to knock me. It's just that, you know, people... The, the, the things that often people think are actually very discreet or not. And as you say, that that really like that coming down to earth is really important. And, and another really important theme there is um, all of a sudden with big data and things like that, there are a lot of people in the C suite or just below it who are suddenly exposed to the results of technology that they wouldn't have been maybe 50 years ago and old strategies for management that perhaps even endorsed or approved the, the idea of zero domain expertise, for example, which is the idea that an executive shouldn't know anything about how mm. things work because they're operating at the level of how things work from the management perspective. Right. Um, I'm sort of like fumbling this presentation of this idea, but basically that, that old idea of zero domain expertise, there's a, it's, there's a fundamental question about whether that's actually possible in business when software has eaten the world. Um, right. And just to pick pick a sort of like cartoonish example from, you know, just the other day, you know, Richard Branson pays a bunch of other people to get him into near orbit, but Elon Musk actually gets into space. Right. Might be a good analogy for, you know, you know, the modern world that we're in now where like, if you don't know anything about how, how the computers go, uh, you, you might just be doomed.
1: Yeah. And it it's, I, I think that the technology, that all of this stuff moves so fast too that even those of us who are steeped in it today can easily feel like we're outstripped tomorrow as far as understanding these things. But, yeah, and actually uh,
0: that actually leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, um, which is, so uh, since you sort of got into, started your PhD in, in physics and then moved on into data science, data science, as you mentioned, has, has become this thing that basically people can learn formally um, there are yes. university courses in data science and stuff like that. Do you feel, if, if you were starting out now with the intention of having a career in this rapidly evolving world of data science, would you do a physics PhD again, or would you do a formal data science course?
1: That's an excellent question. And I think it's probably one of the sort of twin million dollar questions. Uh, the other, you know, one is how should, what should you do if you want to get into this field the other one and get hired the other one is uh of course what my book is about which is you know how do you hire these people how do you how do you determine who's qualified it, it's it's really hard to know i mean i got into this field at a time when by definition everyone was a career switcher right and and nowadays you know you could have a candidate that did both an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in quote data science um and i'm not I'm not really sure. you know, I've in the past thought, oh, if I ever could magically go back and do undergrad again and knew what I knew now, I would my first choice for a major to do it again would be computer science, so that you know I had an even stronger background in what I was doing to build on this. Um, and maybe my out of my personal interests, you know that might still be a way to to go would be computer science and focus on these types of things. Uh, you know, I, I think there's also an argument to be made that uh, if you just know these techniques but you've never really dealt with real problems to apply them to that, that you know, maybe that's hollow. Uh, although I'm sure people make the exact same criticism of statistics or computer science or whatever. Uh, but I, I'm not really sure, you know, I, I think that, um, It's not clear to me yet. I I don't know who's going to be the best people. So on the other hand, you know, you could make an argument that uh, this stuff is, is all about, uh, it is evolving very rapidly. So, you know, the, the data science degree that you get today, BS and data, BSDS will, you know, what's it going to be worth in five years from now, as far as what you learned. And uh, so, So much of the skill is about really just continuing to learn continuously. And, and, you know, there's a whole argument out there by some people that would basically be like, well, you know, college is on the way out because you'll be able to learn everything you need to do online and you'll need to learn new stuff all the time anyway. So it, it is very hard to say. People ask me all the time, mostly about switching, if they want to switch. Should they go get a master's degree in data science or something or a boot camp? Uh, but i'm not really sure i I think if I were eighteen again, I would probably there's a good chance I would do a data science degree if it, they offered it at where I was because you know there's just so much cool stuff going on right now
0: um, yeah it's so really that's it's, a, it,
1: a bit of a non answer sorry
0: no no, no, I think that's a perfect answer because it, it gives us an opportunity to move on to your book and the challenge that 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 it's that some of the challenges that it's addressing yes. the idea of hiring data scientists because you know the flip side of the coin of choosing what to do yourself if you want a career in data science is choosing who to hire and if everything's in flux and moving so fast and you know the, even, even the, the sort of the institution of data science as a as an academic you know uh discipline is only itself a few years old and obviously rapidly evolving and as as a person doing the hiring how do you decide who to who to choose Right. And, and the path that you're now taking your, your company down. Um, and so, yeah. So just moving on to the next part of the interview, where we talk about your book, Hiring Data Scientists and Machine Learning Engineers. Um, I was wondering if we could now uh, do it, what I sort of uh, gestured towards a few moments ago and define some terms. Sure. Um, and you start the book by saying these terms are difficult to define. They can mean a lot of different things. You know, uh, someone someone who really knows their stuff might use the term AI very differently from a marketing department. And the marketing department might be more successful at finding venture capital. Uh, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how the terms data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence are used.
1: Sure. So I think that um, data science, when when it came about, it was sort of defined in, in a very broad way. Uh, basically encompassing any kind of things that you would be doing with data in, in a sort of technology and business context, especially. But um, so, so in, in, that, in that sense, in the, the, broad, the broadest sense, it would be you know, answering questions by using data, um, making predictions using data, automating things using data, all, all of these types of things, so you know that could be the very traditional kind of data and analytics type things like uh, you know what what were our sales last quarter and last year or whatever you know you get the data take a look at it um, more slightly more sophisticated things like uh, can we identify groups within our customer base that seem to be uh, similar to each other can we can we can we cluster those or group those, uh, segment those customers into certain things? And then we can maybe uh, have ads that are really going after those specific segments of our, our customer base or the market. Um, and things like uh, AB testing, as I mentioned before, you know, is, is a, there's supposedly some famous Google one where they tried out 41 different shades of blue on their search button to see which one got the most clicks or something like that. You know, can we statistically show that this is a better idea than our last idea? Uh, and then, you know, that there's, uh, so, so a lot of that is sort of traditional kind of analytics. There's some more sophisticated statistical techniques, and then there's also machine learning stuff that kind of came out of the computer science world, and that's building these predictive models. You know, you, you want to predict what price a house is going to sell for, you want to, uh, do search and try to try to rank what are the links that that someone doing a search term you know that they're doing a search and for this search term what are they most likely to actually want as a as a result or recommend products or music or whatever else you know they're using machine learning and some other uh, kind of advanced numerical techniques in the background and uh, you know automating things um or a silly example would be if you, you, you've got a big pile of pictures and you want to know which ones are cats and which ones are dogs. And you can, you know, building an algorithm to, uh, to, to do that for you faster than a human could do, or facial recognition or something along those lines. So all of that really has fallen under data science. Uh, there's a lot of, on, on top of that is, you know, all the stuff you need to do to make that happen. Getting the data, uh, uh, cleaning up the data, transforming it, and, and also, you know, putting some of that into production, building dashboards, making reports, uh, uh, making web apps to some extent, depending on what it is. Now, the, the machine, so the machine learning part is, is that subset of techniques that is really a way of creating computer programs where instead of the programmer uh, manually sort of describing the logic, if this, then this, else do this, else this. Uh, you you are using data to uh, essentially train the program, as the whole process of training to figure out what logic should be used internally in the program. And uh, you know, so so there there's there are several types of machine learning, but in some of the broad categories are like supervised learning, where you you take data where you kind of know the answers. You know, you know this is a pile of pictures of cats. You know, this is a pile of pictures of dogs. And then you feed that data in, and, and your algorithm during the training phase makes a guess. And you can say, "Oh, that you said cat, but it was actually a dog." And so then it goes and it tries to adjust its internal parameters so that it's able to make, uh, on average, the best guesses. Uh, and then there's also unsupervised learning, things you're doing where you don't necessarily know. So that would be like the uh, customer segmentation I mentioned before, like if you had a ton of music and you wanted to classify it into genres, but uh, you know, there's you but you don't know you just have say in in the old days millions of mp3 files or something and certainly something that a human could do but uh, when you have to do it at scale you you want to try to build an algorithm to do that and uh, so you're trying to extract meaningful features as i said call it from this so you might think of things in music like uh beats per minute and uh, how loud it is. And, and uh, if you can identify certain instruments or whatever, and metadata that might go along with it, but uh, you know, there, there are still, if it's unlabeled as a, uh, for unsupervised learning, then you, you know, you've got a lot of questions. Well, how many genres should we, should the music break down into how, you know, uh, and, and all sorts of stuff like that, because you, you don't know ahead of time. And, you know, you might be in the world of like, uh, I'm trying to think of some very, let's say, uh, roots reggae, which is probably a relatively straightforward kind of genre. But then you come over to something like metal, and there's like every song is in its own genre, as far as I understand. You know, there's like so many genres that just splintered, 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 and and then you have to make decisions there at some point. You know, do we just call that all metal, or should we break it down into the twenty thousand different subgenres? So that, that's machine learning. AI, I, I would say, is a broader set of techniques than machine learning, but today, when people talk about machine learning, it's 99% of the time they're talking about artificial intelligence. Uh, historically, there were probably two main schools of artificial intelligence. Uh, one was actually was trying to go in and handwrite all the logic rules to make decisions, and famously, in the 80s and 90s, people used what were called expert systems, and they would, you know, go and interview the uh the radiologist and say okay how do we tell if there's a nodule in this chest x-ray or whatever and and then say well i look for something that's about a centimeter across and it's brighter than the others and blah 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 and then so in the expert systems world or knowledge-based ai or rules-based ai you know you would try to go and, and really codify those decision uh rules whereas in in the uh the machine learning world, the idea was that you you would try to use the data that you had to teach the the program what those rules were and uh, and so and then AI has a long history of sort of these uh, they call it AI winters and sort of booms and busts where people got very excited and then it didn't work out and uh, then they got excited again and then it didn't work out and you know at the moment we're kind of in this the last decade or so uh, a pretty pretty high high for for AI all based on machine learning and uh, you know we've we've been able to demonstrate a lot of actual value that can come out of these techniques and uh, but but at the same time you know from a the perspective of someone who works in this field you know the AI term just gets abused so much and uh, so it, it's one of those things that I think I'm I think I put this in my book but the kind of standard joke is that Uh, you know, when you're, when you're out to raise money, you say AI, but when you're out to hire people, you say ML, machine learning, right? That's what they're actually doing. And it just uh, sort of, it's not going to rub those people the wrong way. If you say machine learning and that's what you're doing. Whereas if you say AI, you know, people feel like, Oh, this is, you know, marketing, the, the human resources has been infected by the marketing people kind of thing. And uh, so so that, that I'd say those are those are kind of the the layout of those three terms. Um
0: Yeah, I think those are really great explanations. Um uh it's funny, another another AI joke that that you reminded me of is that that something is something is called artificial intelligence until we build a machine that can do it. And then it's right, and it's not intelligence anymore. Um, uh but uh yeah, that um that description you give in your book of, of saying, I, I really like the way you contrast, you know, just like a programmer writing out all the logical rules, if this, then that, and that machine learning, you can understand it as saying, if this, then ask the machine, and, and then do what the machine does. But that's, right. one, that's one of the reasons that it's easier for people to think of it as, that's what I think one of the reasons people are so often tempted to call it artificial intelligence, because you're, it's kind of like asking somebody to do something for you, and you don't know you don't have to go into their head and know exactly what's going on, but something's coming out that where there's no straightforward relationship for you between the yes. input and the output. So it's sort of natural to relate to something like that as a form of, right. of intelligence. Um,
1: One of the examples I like to give to contrast those is, is uh, decision trees or flow charts. You know, that, that's something where if you were a doctor and you'd say, oh, well, you know, is there a heartbeat Above this beats per minute, you know, is is their temperature below this? Is their blood pressure above this? You know, and you can think of writing down those rules, and that that would be your flowchart or your decision tree, uh, and and you could easily write that as a program, right? Uh, whereas the machine learning, typically, like in in the supervised scenario where you knew sort of the the uh, symptoms going in and you knew what the outcome was, what you would do is you you would put that information that data into the the training algorithm with the with the machine learning, and it would eventually, in the end, uh, it would just try out all these different combinations of those decision rules. So, you know, maybe it'd say, "Is is the temperature over uh, thirty seven degrees Celsius?" Well, maybe it starts out by saying, "Well, what if it's over forty five degrees Celsius?" Which, by the way, you'd be dead probably if you're that hot. But you know, and it, it's going to just keep trying a bunch of different rules, hopefully in a in a way that can actually find good rules, but then it might end up on, on the same kind of uh, similar decisions that a human would make, or, or very different ones if it ends up getting better results in the end. It's just going to, and so you can think of it as those are two ways where you could build the same algorithm. But one is you just using what you as a human knew, and the other one is like just pouring in all the data to try to figure it out. Now, of course, it's only going to be as good as the data you have. And I, I guess you could also say your, your algorithm that you write down to make your uh, flow charter decision tree is only going to be as good as the knowledge that you have internalized.
0: Uh, so now that we've built up this pretty good foundation of understanding what data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence are and uh, what the sort of business or startup practices can be that, 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 that they can be applied to, um, let's say you're uh, the typical person that you know your book is is meant for which is you've now been you're working for a company whether it's big medium or small and you've been tasked with uh hiring a data science team uh what do you do
1: well the the way i go about it in the book is you know it's really about first is try to figure out what you need and and why so i i try to start you know, off with the fundamental questions of, you know, what are you trying to achieve? What are your business goals? And then trying to kind of be as specific as possible and kind of break that down and to see what roles make sense to actually get you, help you, f- you know, meet those goals, achieve those goals that you have for for your business or organization, uh, and and then kind of go from there. So the, probably the the highlight there for me is like understanding what you want to do and then trying to describe as crisply as possible what the roles are that you need and that that you know that helps you for several reasons but uh, one of one of those things is just kind of under overcoming all of the confusion that's out there and uh you know you can argue about whether for example job applicants will actually read the job description or not but uh the the classic problems that you kind of run into are here's an ad for a data scientist, and a bunch of data scientists apply, but you know, they may have all been doing very different stuff than what you need them to do, but you know your description of it was very broad. We want you to get value from our data, something like that, you know and and, uh, and in the end, that's kind of bad for everybody because. You wasted a bunch of your time and they wasted a bunch of their time because it was actually very different. And, and even worse, you know, if you hire someone and, and uh, you haven't conveyed what it is this role is, is really aimed at, and they have very different expectations.
0: And I think it's, it's uh, one thing you mentioned, too, is that it's, it's, but there's a, this interesting issue with, with scale that you have when you're hiring in data science. Because, you know, I mean, if you're in this sort of tech world, you know, famously sort of recruiting good software engineers, it's like, you know, there's not enough out there right. um often and uh, but with when you put out you know your shingle out asking for people to apply for data science jobs you just get deluged
1: yes i it, i would say that that's been one of the things that has i, I don't know if surprised me is, is the right word maybe i just you know i wasn't really expecting uh, sort of in the real world what what the overall candidate volumes would be like uh, you know it, it, you see people are talking about data science and machine learning all the time. So you, obviously this is a very popular thing, but until you, until I was faced with the actual numbers of candidates and stuff, I, I wasn't really prepared. And so that's probably been my biggest challenge that I've been faced with. And, and I talk a bit about this in the book that, you know, this book is, is largely written from my experience and, and my experience has been in small to medium-sized uh, tech startups. And so the problem, the challenges I've been faced with are like low resources to support the hiring effort and then just a very large candidate volume. So, you know, and and, and over the course of my career, which, you know, in absolute terms sounds short, but in the data science world, is it's a very, been pretty long. Uh, you know, I've gone from seeing a manageable number of candidates where I was the one doing pretty much everything to... Uh, an unmanageable number unless you designed a process to be very efficient. And so a, a lot of the book talks about kind of confronting that challenge of of that huge volume of applicants, which can just be overwhelming. And, you know, I, I contrast that to, like in my last company that I worked at, uh, going over to the engineering organization, which is separate from data science, and talking to them about their hiring challenges and stuff. And, you know, their applicant pool is just so much smaller that you know they could they could could use a very different process and still uh, you know spend time with their children and things like that. and uh, so that's that's one of those things. I mean, so so depending on the type of war you're in, that might mean that you need to spend time working with h r and recruiters and whoever is working on it to help them understand what this challenge is and also be prepared for that. And the, you know, the certain aspects of your hiring process that might work in one part of your organization won't necessarily work for, for your data science and machine learning hiring if, if you're faced with that. It, and I, I also talk about this in the book a lot, but you know the, the footnote there is that uh, if you're trying to hire a senior manager or a very senior technical person, you, know, you don't have that problem. It is, you know, now suddenly your, your problem is more like you just can't get enough candidates because there just aren't that many people out there that have uh, the, the amount of experience for those roles for, for you to be uh, getting, getting inundated. But if you're, if you're looking at the more junior roles, you know, new graduates, those kind of things, I mean, it's, it can be overwhelming.
0: And uh, yeah, you've mentioned the term process a couple of times. And I think you talk about that, about how one of the most important things to do, if you're going, if you're, if, if it's just you and a friend with your startup, you don't necessarily need to define processes. But if you're dealing with a bigger organization, maybe with an HR department, and if you are going to get, have the scale issue with the first wave of, of candidates, then the most important thing to do, I, I, as I understand it, is to actually have a defined process yes. at the beginning. You're going to iterate, you're going to change, yes, but exactly. to have a shared, and the, the importance of defining it is that that. De- definition of the process can be shared and understood amongst people. And they can say, look yes. at a, look at something and go, yeah, we're in stage three with this candidate or something.
1: Like yes. That. I think that, you, you know, when you talk to, uh, candidates, which is basically everyone, cause everybody's applied for jobs, uh, you know, at some point, And, uh, I guess there's maybe a few people who just became a founder or something in the beginning, but, um, you know, everyone's had bad experiences as a candidate and, uh, you know I, I think that the probably a lot of people out there, or at least in the tech world, you know, would would say that their overall experience um, trying to get a job is kind of probably negative on on the whole. And you know some of it is I, I mean, I think it's a fundamentally difficult challenge, you know just trying trying to hire, trying to do it in a way that is effective, efficient, and fair. I think that's just it's just very difficult, but, it, but also, you know, th- there are a lot of companies out there that, that uh, they just don't spend much time thinking about how you might do this well. Uh, and I guess that's the goal of my book is to help people like give them a set of questions and a thing to follow to try to do this well. But uh, I-, I think that it's, uh, I yeah, just no, lost my train no, of no,
0: no, that's okay. I think that, that you just reminded me of something that discussion I had a while ago with somebody about the, this very same issue. And it was one of the things that they said was that recruitment is marketing uh, for, yeah. for the company. And that's something really important. And I, mean, I say this specifically with respect to sympathy for people on the candidate side of the desk, right? Or the process, right? Mm-hmm. It's that like, if you keep that in mind as, a, as someone who's working on the recruitment side, that this is actually marketing for the company, um, that that can really help you not just like, I mean, there's there's this sort of squishy element of empathy and stuff like that, which is actually really important. But there's also like, this is actually important for our business that we treat people well. Right. And transparency well, and a good process and fairness right. and things like that are all really important features of The,
1: the, you know, the other version I've heard uh, from people I know that worked at Amazon, you know, they would say that one of the rules they had there and, you know, uh, maybe bringing up Amazon is good or bad, depending on who you are. But. They they would say that, you know, we treat each applicant, uh, they're a customer and like our number one value or whatever in the company is that, you know, we give outstanding customer service. And I'm sure people could disagree about that too, specifically, but, you know, uh, people I knew who had been hiring managers there, they'd say, you know, so we have these things where whatever guidelines, rules, targets that we're trying to follow where, you know, we want to get back to people in these very short time cycles, you know, we want to do all this stuff, you know, we want, we want them to come away feeling like they got uh, the equivalent of great customer service. And, and I think that that is a very challenging but uh, correct goal to have in your process. Um, you know, there's, if you have hundreds or thousands or even more applicants, you know, there, there's no way that everyone can come away from the, that process being happy, especially because you know you get a thousand candidates and you hire one person. You know there are 999 that, that didn't get hired, and uh, certainly some of those don't care at all. But but certainly some people are going to be very unhappy. Uh, but you know you you don't want them to be able to objectively point out things that were unfair or unprofessional or whatever in there. You know ideally all of those people will come back and apply again the next time around.
0: Um, It's really interesting. I know your, your book is, you know, explicitly directed at people who are going to be hiring into data science, but um, any one of those thousand candidates would probably be uh, it would probably be a good decision for them to read the book too, because uh, if you know what people on the other, one of the really important lessons in getting hired is to know what it's like to be on the other side and what they're looking for. And so uh, for anyone listening uh, who here, who is, looking for a career in data science and isn't going to be on the hiring side until they've been hired in the first place, uh, if you could give them one one piece of advice or maybe a couple pieces of advice for how they should engage in the application process and the interview process, what what advice would you give them?
1: Well, besides buy my book, <laughs> yeah. or maybe the second piece of advice would be buy two copies. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the main thing that, that I've told people along these lines is that it's important to set your expectations realistically so part of that is that you know like i've mentioned there there are just so many candidates out there that unless you are just absolutely outstanding you know much of the time you are going to get rejected and so so that that's one piece i mean that that's a little bit that's an unsatisfying sort of answer around stoicism or something but it is the reality. You know, I, I talked to many candidates who would come talk to me after they had applied and got rejected, and and you know there may have been no weakness that I could point out that they had. But you know they need to understand that they're up against a very large candidate pool, and there are people that are even stronger than them as far as like you know the signals that are coming to us. Uh, so that's that's one thing, uh, and uh, I think that's probably a baseline. Um, I think otherwise, a lot of it is about numbers applying widely. Uh, if you and this this almost feels a little bit like cheating, but if you know if you know people that work at a company and it sounds like a really good fit then trying to get some sort of referral or or whatever, and uh, you know you may be put on some sort of short list, uh, that's not something actually that I've ever done. You know, just in the in the in the uh, uh, with the goal of fairness in mind, we kind of put everyone on the same level. Uh, That's a hard thing to do. It's very enticing to see someone with a strong resume or whatever, and and not do that. And a lot of people wouldn't do that. But that's the general uh, rule that I followed: is to uh, you know try to treat everyone fairly. Um, But that doesn't that doesn't mean that it's bad advice. I'd say to try to get that because a lot of places that, that is the case. I, I think that's probably a bad, bad practice, but uh, that that is uh, what places do. And, and I think that it's you know it's very different depending on what level you're coming. in. If you're coming in at the entry level, like I said, it's, you know that's sort of if you're coming in on, on the more senior level. Uh, a lot of that is done in in a more conversational way, right? Uh, you know, you can imagine, especially the further away you get from the technical stuff, uh, the more subjective a lot of the the skills are and everything. And so if you're, if you're a manager, you know, you want to have your firm handshake or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, I think those are probably my two main pieces of advice. And and then And then the other baseline, I guess, is, you know, most of these companies are going to give people assessments, technical assessments of one kind or another, and you should do your best to prepare for those. A lot of times they're bad assessments, they're unfair, whatever, you know, they're testing you on inverting binary trees, which is not something that data scientists ever need to do, but uh, they, they may be doing that. But if that's the reality, then you, you often have to go out there and do it. Um, so those are probably the things that there's no magic formula. Uh, it's uh, it's, I, I think that they're the, the people trying to get hired are in, Basically, an equally difficult situation as the people trying to hire.
0: Yeah one one just one last question I have about that is very specific. So, um, in programming, in the world of software engineering and stuff like that, often when before you've had your first job, one thing that people are often advised to do is to have side projects of their own. So, some little app that you've built somewhere, right. and people can get find the source code on GitHub and and look at it and stuff like that. So, even if you haven't had a job, uh, you might actually have something that you've built that you can point people to. And it might even have users who can refer you and say, oh, I know so-and-so they built this and I use it every day right, in right. my such and such task. Right. Is that true in the data science world as well?
1: Uh, I, I think so. You know, I think especially early on, uh, people were putting stuff out there and you know, there's, there weren't many other examples of some cool analysis or some cool app that pulled a bunch of data in and did whatever. Um, I, I think, and I think that it depends a lot on who's doing the hiring, how valuable that will be for the process that I've typically run. I would say it is valuable with the understanding that like, I typically wouldn't look at that stuff until someone's gotten into the later stages. So uh, this is, this is one of the, the hard things that, that, you know, some of the discussions I've had where because the challenges I face are just like this sheer scale and volume of the candidate pool. I basically, in the early stages can't spend time looking at resumes, cover letters or side projects or anything like that. So uh, I, there's just simply not enough time. And uh, so instead, it's like you know try to focus on on how can you most efficiently and effectively filter those candidates. Um, and to get to narrow your funnel of candidates to the next stage, and uh, you know, I, as I mentioned, I I ended up adopting the process where I wouldn't even look at resumes, and and for a few reasons, one is that there are so many resumes that you just can't tell apart, uh, and then you know the other ones is that oftentimes the resumes are, uh, you, you know, the, the the quality of the resume, as far as getting the signal about the candidate is so, it can be so unreliable that, uh, you know, that you can sort of uh, waste your time looking, doing that too. And, you know, certainly the technical skills assessments that would give are, are imperfect at best, but it's 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 kind of a, a fair way Relatively fair, as fair as you probably could be, way to to do some sort of assessment um, that that will still allow you to deal with that uh, that volume and that scale. So, you know, as I mentioned in other ones, you know, you may you could have a thousand candidates and they're all Grace Hopper or whoever you know is is incredible, but like you just don't have enough time to to talk to each one certainly. Uh, it, in 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 your process and and so that's that's basically uh the way that that i look at that so now as i said before if you've made it a couple of stages in then then you know and then we start looking at candidates in a more thorough way and, and then you know i'm looking at their resume usually not as not as a filter and 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 the projects not as a filter but as additional pieces of information you know it might be like oh can you tell us about this or or like you know we're hiring for let's say time series forecasting, but we also notice that they've done work on audio, and you know somehow that ties into something that we want to do. So we might be say oh well this candidate these candidates are about the same, but this person you know they showed that they can use this technology or they have this experience or whatever that's additional. So so I I, I think that compared to sort of traditional hiring methods that's a little bit flipped as far as using the resume much later in the process.
0: Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that and for anyone interested in getting more into the details of, uh, you know, how you can build a process to to deal with uh, such a large volume of applicants in such a kind of indeterminate industry with maybe indeterminate demands from management, uh, please buy the book Hiring Data Scientists and Machine Learning Engineers. Um, And so just moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience, uh, the, the craft and process and, you know, experience just of writing, writing and self publishing a book. I guess my first question would be, um, why did you choose LeanPub as a platform for writing and publishing it?
1: So I didn't really set out to write a book. Um, I was last year kind of during the pandemic and in, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I and most of my team were laid off from the company we were at because uh, just all, along with a lot of other people at that time. And uh, so I ended up doing uh, a bunch of consulting and then at the same time, I was like looking for, uh, I was looking for ideas to build a software startup and a software company. And and as part of the software company, the, the one of I ended up kind of focusing on ideas around hiring because I'd just been spending so much time on that, and I wasn't happy with the tools that existed. And I was trying to figure out, you know, were there was there some software that I could try to build that would help people be more effective and efficient and fair in, in their hiring process and so uh, as part of that I started um, basically interviewing a whole bunch of hiring managers to, tr- to ask them about the, the challenges they were facing and and what their process was and and you know how, how they went about everything at the same time I'm having a bunch of conversations with clients and potential clients that are basically you know uh, who should I be hiring and how do I hire them and how do I structure my team and and all these things like that. So strategic stuff around their stuff they're doing. So basically, uh, you know, at some point I was like, Oh, I should just write a series of blog posts that covers a lot of this stuff so that I can essentially point people to that. And, uh, and then a couple of things happened kind of simultaneously, coincidentally, uh, one was that I had been, uh, sort of hanging out on the, uh, SAS, SAS slack uh SAS twitter world or something people who are building these SaaS companies and and i saw someone said something like hey you know before you don't need to wait until your software is ready to release you know the first thing you release could be a newsletter or a white paper or something along those lines while you're still you know trying to get your product out the door to help you you know build some credibility and get you know uh markets make the market aware of you things like that and then uh the other thing was that i uh my I, my friend joel Gruce, he had just released his most recent book uh and that was on lean pub uh versus so he decided to self-publish it versus going with uh, a traditional publisher like he had with his last uh his book before that and so you know i kind of very naively thought hey maybe i should just instead of writing those blog posts which i had I had drafted a couple of them. I should put that out as a book and sell that. And, you know, it can't possibly take more than a couple months. And so, uh, you know, looking at LeanPub when I went and I checked out his book, his, uh, Joel's book is, uh, I believe it's called 10 Essays on FizzBuzz. And, uh, you know, I went and checked it out and, and then, you know, I looked around and I said, oh, you know, this, this is a platform that looks like it will allow me to get things done quickly. I, I would say that, you know, that was the main thing. And, and, you know, my goal was, it it, my primary goal, we'll say, is not to be like a best-selling author, uh, but rather, you know, to get some stuff out there that I could promote and help me towards the goals that I have. Now, of course, uh, I grossly, you know, mis-underestimated or maybe <laughs> how long it's going to take or maybe I overestimated my abilities, whatever it was. Uh, but, you know, maybe if I had hundred percent full-time, very focused, I could have done it all in two months, but, uh, you know, I, uh, my consulting work and other stuff kind of intervened. So, so my, uh, pace was a little bit slower, but, uh, you know, I ended up writing this on lean the other thing was, you know, that immediately jumped out to me was I'm a computer person, uh, or I guess. I don't know. I don't know what you. I don't know if you can just say you're a computer person if you work in the tech world and you know program and stuff. You're like a, you are like an people.
0: In, people in will definitely call you that if you are
1: yeah, incorrigible, insufferable computer geek. I guess at that point, right? Is, uh, so so you know with with Leanpub, I one of the things I immediately saw was the Markdown workflow that was available, and I normally write my notes and things in Markdown, and uh, just integration. I I chose. To write my book with the markdown to GitHub workflow, and then um, you know Leanpub then goes and grabs that and, and builds all of the, the ebook stuff. I, I didn't really mess around uh, with with other stuff. I was I was pretty happy from the beginning, and you know especially that I could uh, put my book page up on basically day one and say here it is and then start spamming people I knew to say, look, I'm gonna write a book, uh, here it is, please sign up, please put, put in a, a price you think would be fair, what you'd be willing to pay and get started. And, and I think that was really good just to kind of start gauging interest and also uh, getting people uh, a little bit ready, whet their appetite maybe. Uh, I, I did, I will say that the very first thing I did was make a book cover which everyone told me that I shouldn't be wasting my time on that. But uh, to me, making the, making the book, book cover and putting it up on the LeanPub landing page for my book was like, you know, it was saying, oh, this is real now. I need to do this. I need to complete this. And then, you know, I started getting some pre-orders and everything. And, and uh, so, you know, then at that point, uh, it, you really start thinking, yeah, I, I should probably finish this. People have already paid me money and uh, I'm on the hook at this point. Yeah,
0: thanks very much for sharing that. Um, That is actually one of the, uh, one of we think of one of our most important features actually is that the moment you create a book, we create a landing page for your book and encourage you to fill it out and fill out your profile. And the reason is A, it makes it seem real, B, it gives people an opportunity to sign up and say, hey, I'm interested in this book and gives you um, motivation to do it. And um, that's, you know, it without those things, it just seems like it's just you and an idea, Uh, but anything being out there, including having a cover, is actually there as much for you at the beginning of a project as it is, as it is for other people. Um, And uh, you, you brought up there, you know, one of the, I mean, you can't, you can't do anything public without starting to get advice from people about (laughs) what you should do. And I would say, here's my advice. When you create a landing page for a book project, make a nice book cover image. That is the first thing that you, well, the first thing you should do is create the book landing page. But the second thing you should do is uh, make a book cover it's really important. And uh, in, in particular, it's very important in the self-publishing space because it's a sign that you are serious about what you're doing and, and you're going to try hard, right? I mean, the skill of, the skill of making a, a good book cover is a unique skill and it's not the same as writing a good book on any topic, but sure. the fact that you, you put in the effort to do it is is not unique to the craft of, of making a right making I, a I, I
1: have gotten a, a few compliments on the book cover which i made myself so i felt proud about that but uh um and then i'm sure you know it, it's a there's no accounting for taste so who knows but uh so that that was that was a good uh you know starting experience uh like i said i really liked the workflow that was available um i didn't i haven't tried the the sort of web version of it, but one of the other things I did that was probably unusual was uh, that I ended up doing some of the writing on my phone. And the way I did that was uh, I have an Android phone and you can set up uh, a thing called, I think it's called Termux, which is basically, (laughs) this is where it gets really geeky. Uh, It's a way to have like a Linux terminal command line on your phone. And so then, what I was doing is like, oh, and you, then you can install these packages. So I installed Git, and uh, and then I installed a Markdown app, and uh, and then I have a, a very tiny keyboard that I like to use. Uh, that I would then, when I was kind of out and about, and I was uh, hanging out at my relatives' uh, houses, uh, usually about once a week for for some dinner or something, and and uh, uh, might spend a couple. An hour in the corner when every, everyone else is doing things uh, just writing and have my little keyboard and, and my phone and then I can just uh, commit the changes and ship them off to github and then uh, you know they're ready to go so that, that was also interesting um, it's not for everybody but but I kind of enjoyed that part
0: oh no thanks very much for sharing that actually it's one of the one of the joys of having so many of our authors be people who are technically proficient and curious is that we get to hear about all the all the kind of Rube Goldberg machines that they built <laughs> to do their yeah. writing. And, of course, and it, for some people, it's just the, pro, the, you know, the process of setting it up is actually fun and yeah. interesting uh, in itself. Um, one other thing you did that was relatively unique too was you actually conducted, I think, five or six relatively uh, long-form interviews with people who work in um, the hiring, uh, particularly the space that you're writing about. I think there's someone from Spotify, someone from the Wikimedia Foundation and things like that. And I was wondering, I mean, you know, we've been going on for a while now, so maybe in just, in just a few minutes, if you could talk a little bit, if you could give some advice to people who are going to be doing interviews for their books, what little bits of advice would you give Sure. Them?
1: So I decided to do the interviews uh, for two reasons. One was that, you know, I, I was very aware that my experience was relatively narrow in the challenges that I had faced in in doing hiring because of the specific circumstances I had been in. And so I wanted to uh, you know, get some broader perspectives. And then, of, of course, uh, I mean, there, there's kind of a practical marketing aspect to it, which is that uh, I'm not as famous as some of those people or certainly not as famous as some of the names of the places they were. And they're all extremely competent, extremely experienced people. And uh, so that's kind of why I did that. And, and I think, honestly, that the interviews are the highlight of the book. And uh, maybe it's because I already knew the stuff I was writing because it was already in my head. And But, you know, they're saying things that I didn't necessarily know. Uh, but basically, you know, I, I I found those people. Some of them were people that I already knew. Some of them were people that uh, because I had been talking to other people about, hey, I'm going to do this book or whatever, then they were, you know, sort of through the network said, you should really talk to this person. This is a person who has a lot to say about that topic. Um, and... As far as the sort of specifics i ended up using zoom uh free free zoom uh you know it's like uh no limit on the time and in the settings you can go check the thing where it it will give you two separate audio files for each a separate audio file for each speaker uh so so very good for uh low budget podcasting and stuff like that uh and and, and i had some ambition to turn the interviews that I did into some podcasts or clips or whatever that I'll use to uh, help promote the book or something I'm not not sure yet so you know i I uh, talked to those people i I set up a list of questions mostly probably half the questions that I asked all of the people in my book were the same and then some some uh, more specific ones and then you know it, it comes down to transcriptions so I actually went through and tried out a bunch of tools to do these transcriptions for me. The first one I didn't try. I'm not sure if I tried it at all, but you know, I started realizing like, oh wow, uh, I'm doing these interviews that are between 30 minutes and an hour, and I'm probably spending five times that much time doing the transcription. And and you know, you could see if you were if you were in this podcast right now, you'd see Lynn looking at the clock, wondering how long it's going to take to transcribe this interview. But the, uh, you know, and then I used some tools and, and for the most part, uh, well, also I'm, I'm, a, I'm a geek and I'm working machine learning and, you know, that's what they're using to do these transcriptions. So I didn't try any of the ones that you had to pay for because I was like, I want to I see what they're doing. And, and so I, I tried a few open source ones from Mozilla. I tried some models that had been released by Facebook. I think they have one called... Uh, wave to VEC, wave to Vec U, or wave to VEC2 or something. So, you know, I literally went and grabbed the source code and then started running it on my computer. And I'd say, unfortunately, nothing, nothing worked well. Uh, some, some of the transcriptions were hilarious, but they weren't very useful. And then on, and then on the other hand, you know, for my book, I was doing a fair amount of editing anyway. So in the end, I decided just to manually transcribe those so that I could clean stuff up and, uh, sh- you know, shorten things, cut out a few things, um, uh, m- make me certainly, and to a very small extent, the interviewees sound a little bit smarter, uh, you know, chopping out the ums and whatevers and, and a little bit of content that, that uh, uh, they didn't want to get in there, whatever, whatever it was. So at the end of the day, I, I felt that for these, uh, I think I did five interviews, that probably the, uh, the best value was for me to just transcribe these uh, by myself.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing the details of that process. Um, uh, it's, it's um, we actually have a professional transcriber um, that, wow, yeah. that we, that we, that we pay to do it. Um, I, I do an editorial pass afterwards. Uh, if you, by the way, if anyone listening, if you do um, like the transcriptions of our podcasts on LeanPub, uh, I can put you in touch with our transcriber named Alice McDonough. Um, uh, she's very fair and she's priced and does a good job uh, but yes I know I used to do them manually myself and I know how how long it takes uh, and uh, it's a very it's, it's actually and and I also know that you know the auto transcribing stuff just right is not it, is not there yet
1: it's it's kind of amazing because I do voice typing all the time on my phone and sending messages and whatever and it works very well but the the little bit of stuff that I had seen you know it just wasn't close to that and then on top of that you know when you are actually having a discussion in in a setting like an interview or a podcast and the way people talk it doesn't uh it's not the same as when you're doing for example deliberate voice typing and uh, you know you you if you listen to yourself or someone else doing it they'll they'll tend to slow down enunciate better you're trying to structure what you're saying as a sentence and it's not all you knows and ums and ahs like it is in in uh regular free-flowing speech so and that's what you get when you transcribe the other one is is there's a lot of uh noise and junk and then stuff that uh is confusing to the auto transcribers
0: i mentioned advice earlier and um before we started recording. You mentioned that you had an interaction on Twitter today. I think I think you didn't say it, but I, I sure. gathered questioning your decision to use our platform. Uh, and I was wondering if- you Well,
1: it wasn't quite it. that it, it okay. was. Uh, so the I, I saw a tweet by Paul Graham, who is, uh, he was the founder of Y Combinator, you know, probably the most famous startup incubator in uh, Silicon Valley. And he posed a question, uh, basically what, Platform and tool should I be using to self-publish a book? And I want to do it all in the browser. And uh, I replied to that just saying, "Oh, well, you know, I just released this book on Leanpub, and uh, I didn't do the use the browser tool, but it exists." Uh, and and then the other thing he said was that he wanted good control over the graphical elements. And I said, "You know, Leanpub might be the one you want." Someone else then asked him, "Well, why does it have to be all in the browser?" And he said, if it's not all in the browser, it's a sign that they're just incompetent. And I wasn't sure what to think there because, you know, I probably wouldn't have chosen LeanPub if I had been forced to be on the browser. And uh, so to me, you know, it was like, I I wanna use the the tools I'm most comfortable with, which in this case was uh, my text editor, right? And I, I think that's for a lot of people and obviously LeanPub has kind of a specific audience that's kind of s- centric around, you know, tech people that, that I find that to be very easy and and nice. And also, you know, you can, well, like I said, I did something crazy, which was use my phone to do some of the writing, but also, you know, you can you can be in one of these uh, Zen mode editors to block things out and stuff like that. So I, I don't know what to think about that. And uh, it's uh, for someone like lean pub you know it's a kind of a question of product market fit or a product market niche fit whatever it is
0: yeah thanks for sharing that that's really fascinating i think i think uh, when it comes to explaining why he would he would say that about you know if they don't know how to produce a book from a browser app then they don't know what they're doing i mean that just speaks to what we talked about before which is the messiness of personalities and you know yeah. one thing i would say in, in in writing is that people are often very um
1: Opinionated. You should come and, into hiring. People yeah. are <laughs> even more opinionated. I,
0: I imagine that. And and the thing is one of the difference, one of the differences I would say between like having very specific preferences and being opinionated is that you you conflate right having very to, specific preferences with the right way of doing things for everybody. Yes. And uh, that that's that, that's I've got I'm an opinionated person in lots of things. And and uh, but but it is it is true then I, I wanted to bring it up just in that sort of like at the sort of like more meta level, which is that whenever you would, if, if you put yourself out there doing a project like self-publishing a book, you're gonna get a lot of people coming at you with very strong opinions about things. Yes. And um, one thing I would note is that they often change them uh, after they've had <laughs> exposure to the world because it's actually a lot more complicated than you might think. And I, if I had to guess why someone like Paul Graham would be making a comment like, if they don't know how to do it in the browser, they're not competent or something like that, would be a lot of people a lot of people's, I think, experience with book publishing and getting a book published is a lot of back and forth in Word. Right. Um, and if you're someone who's seen a million, you know, technologies tried and evolved and proposed, you know, because the stuff that Y Combinator approves is one, you know, small sliver of, of the things that people apply, the sure. projects that people apply with. And it, you know, if you're if you're that kind of person. And then you try to get into book publishing, and someone's like, "Send me a Word document." I can see how you would quickly come to the yes. conclusion that like these people are not technically competent. Um, and whether that's true or not, or, or right. correct conclusion I, to I, draw or not, I can see I can see how you would want to see, you would be inclined sorry just to finish, but you would be inclined to like want a signal that someone's technically sophisticated before you would get. Involved. Right.
1: I, I coming out of the uh, like physicsy, mathy world of academia, you know, I feel the same way about journal publishers that don't accept LaTeX. Like how could, how could you possibly be a, a serious academic journal if you don't take LaTeX? But uh, I, you know, I, I could only speculate about Paul Graham. Uh, I, it's a little bit of a, uh, not something that I would expect because, uh, I mean, he has published a few books but also I think I remember reading an essay or something by him where he talked about his process where he actually uh, would write on a laptop that was completely offline.
0: Yeah, you're just reminding me, I think I've interviewed more than one person who actually using our in-browser mode, what they would do is, even though they were still online, what they would do is they would go somewhere um, uh, apart, like you know, a coffee shop or something like that to get out of their home environment. But what they would do is they would write until the computer, their laptop ran out of power. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was like kind of a natural inbuilt timing timer, but that they didn't have to pay attention to. Um, and so these, these different ways of getting yourself out of, you know, the normal circumstances are pretty common. The last question that I always like to ask on these interviews, if the guest is a Leanpub author is, um, if there was one thing that really annoyed you about Leanpub or that was broken, or if there was one thing that one magical feature that we could build for you, uh, what would you ask us to do?
1: Well, I, I think the the thing that only at the very end did I realize was available was some of the, uh, basically was that you could customize some of the layout you know I, I chose like oh this is a business book and then I just went with that and then specifically the main issue I had was around tables so I had I, if you look in my book there is uh, uh there are a lot of tables and uh the way that they ended up uh the, the default the default table stuff there was like no horizontal separating lines. And so everything's just kind of running together. And and so that was one thing I was unhappy about. But then uh, before I pushed out the final version, I just kind of went through and and looked at every single option that uh, authors have about their book. And I noticed like, oh, you know, I don't have to choose the business book, the whatever fiction book, whatever the, I think, three choices, there was this another one that was, you know, customized or something like that. And I went and then I read through all of those options too. And I realized that, oh, I can add some extra space. Uh, I can add lines between there. And, you know, I, I, I'd say I actually searched the forum several times to see if I could find something like that. And I could never find anything that pointed me there. So it was really, I just kind of wasn't specifically looking for this, but I kind of did a dragnet just to make sure that there wasn't anything I was leaving out of you know, important options. I, I think the other one um, is, I, I'm considering doing uh, some, pa- some actual physical books. And uh, you know, I'm coming into this with n- no experience uh, publishing a book. And so the, the real question to me is like, what is the absolute easiest way to go from what I've just written to uh, a physical book, or or maybe a better question, also would just be like to very broad uh, distribution. And I've tried to kind of stay away from Amazon just out of laziness slash preference, but uh, you know I'm kind of looking at it now because thinking about physical books, I and I thought about that because. I thought maybe I would just print a few as keepsakes and give them to, for example, the people I interviewed as just a thank you. Here's a physical copy of the book. But when I looked at a couple of places that did digital printing, they also had, you know, what looks to be one click set up a storefront and you can sell those books and print on demand. And so I've been looking into that uh, in recent days just to try to figure out what's the best option. But I feel like, uh, you know, if there was a dead simple way to do that, that that would be incredible.
0: Yeah, thanks very much for sharing both of those points. On the first one, um, what I was talking about for those listening, um, is that every lean pub book has four theme options. Uh the first is um fiction, the second is nonfiction, the third is business. Oh wait, no, the third, I think it's no, it's fiction, nonfiction, and technical now. We got rid of the the business theme. Um and or the name we, we just renamed it to nonfiction, uh, because that's obviously more broad. I hope um, my
1: book is mostly non-fiction. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but um but then there's the custom option as well. And um if you if you choose the custom option and you're on a, a, a you know a, a standard or pro plan, then you have all these sort of global formatting settings for your book that you can tweak. And we do we do by the way add to those from time to time based on they're they're basically every single one of those is cuz an author asked for it at some point. Um, we don't do everything everybody asks us for, but if you're writing a LeanPub book and you're getting to the point where you want to do some more customized global formatting settings, and there's something that you need that we don't provide, uh, please feel free to reach out to us and ask if, if there's some way to do it or if, if we can build that in. Uh, and on the second point, um, we do. I believe we have at least one way. There might actually be two guest posts that I can point you to and we'll put links to these in the, in the transcription of the episode, uh, guest posts from LeanPub authors who've gone into print and who outlined their process. Um, the main answer there, though, is that we have a print-ready PDF export flow um, so that once you've ri- written your book using one of LeanPub's writing workflows, um, you can then just choose some settings, whatever, whatever you know, the sort of page size and stuff like that, and then you just click one button and we give you the print-ready PDF file that you need that you can then take to... Various print-on-demand, self-publishing sites and services and things like that, and you just upload it and add some metadata and descriptive descriptive stuff as usual, and so we we give you the option to do that. Uh, more generally, um, that the idea of uh, going wide or going narrow, as they sort of—I well, don't know if they say going narrow, but they definitely say going wide—in the self-publishing blogosphere, and that idea is that you've written a book, good for you. You've you've got it in ebook format, good for you. You've got it in print-ready for PDF format, good for you. Now put it out everywhere you can. Um, and the, the, other, the other view, of course, and that's, by the way, that's as assuming that none of the services that you're using have exclusivity requirements or anything like that. Right. Um, but the other, the other approach, obviously, is point everybody to one place. Um, and so this is just a sort of you know, decision that any self-published author has to make. Do I want everything in one place or do I want it in many places? If it's in many places, which one do I prioritize? Uh, pointing people to. Um, and yeah, it's a choice. I mean, I, I, you know, at least I will say, not speaking for LeanPub, but like the, the advice I always give is go wide. Put your book up in as many places as you're comfortable putting it up. Um, and, and as many places as you, like, you know, if you don't want to enjoy, if you don't want to manage all the data coming from all 10 different places, do five, whatever, whatever works for you. But having your book up in more than one place, at least at the beginning, is a, is a really good idea. Because A, you'll reach more people, presumably, but B, if you do narrow it down to one in the end, you'll only know which one you should choose after having tried tried more than one. Um, and so if you find, for example, that you might find, for example, that you're selling more copies on Amazon, but you might find that you're making more money from LeanPub. Right. Um, and, you know, because we pay higher royalty rate. And so, you know, balancing those things out then depends on what's your goal. If your goal to... Uh, increase your public profile? Well, then you don't necessarily really care about money so much as your goal to sort of attract clients to your consulting business or something like that. Um you know then reaching as many people as you can is maybe more important than making money. Right. Um, you know, and, 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 and I, yeah. I think
1: that it you know the the question that people ask me is, oh, is this going to be on Amazon? And uh, I, I haven't decided that yet. I still don't I don't understand all the the uh, the details related to launching this on Amazon and if I'll need to do anything but I, certainly one of the parts about lean pub that I've really appreciated is uh, a, a very large degree of sort of um, we're partners with the author in and we feel that being non-exclusive is in their best interests and uh, you know so so really like the ownership I, I i have the ownership of my book and I can do whatever I want with it and i I, I feel like uh, that's minimally very aligned with my values, but I think also probably just very good for the authors. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's,
0: that's actually one of the, in addition to being bad about letting people know that we have custom formats, we're also not very good at messaging about the fact that you don't need to publish your book on, on LeanPub at all if you use it to write your book and create your, your, your PDF, EPUB, and MOBI files. Um, it, it's a perfectly, like a perfect LeanPub use case for a self-published author is to use LeanPub to write the book, and create the EPUB, like the, the ebook files, but never publish on LeanPub at all. That's that's you know we're we're here to be the best place in the world to to write uh, books as well as as well as hopefully publish them. But that writing part, if that's all you use LeanPub for, then then that's a perfectly good good uh, case for us. Uh, well, uh, Roy, thank you very much for taking time out of your afternoon. Uh, let, let me
1: let me ask one oh, more sure. feature request, sure, which is for a brief time I was the n- number one top book. On Leanpub, and and I really want a badge on my homepage that says that I was the top seller.
0: Uh, thank there you, you very much for suggesting feature that. Request. That's a, that's a great feature request. I'll I'll, I'll make a story uh, for that for the team right right away. Um, uh, yeah, people love getting on on the bestseller lists for stuff like that. It is actually really important that we that we find a way of surfacing that because it helps people understand how good a book is uh, and how much reach it has. And uh, so yeah, so thank you, Roy, very much for being on the Front Matter podcast and for being a Leanpub author.